0: planning on reading again, but I just, I feel the Holy Spirit just tell me there, there might be some people in here that don't know the truth of what I'm about to read, and and we've been singing about it, and we're going to continue singing about it, and so I just want to read to you here from uh, Romans 8, okay? We know that God, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, and you've, you saw in this song, we're just saying, You are working all things for our good. You saw the, the testimony, the people, the hands raised, that God is always working, even amidst the difficult things, right? And as we continue, what do we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing nothing in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord nothing in this world could separate us from his love this next song we're going to sing has this line that my sin was great but guess what my friends his love was greater his love is greater than our sin his grace extends to you his mercy is for you and so we praise him this morning don't we let's continue singing
1: 15 minutes, but now I just feel God saying, "Slow down. Don't miss this. The stuff, it'll wait. I'm right here. Maybe you needed that reminder this morning as well. As we step into His presence, right in this very moment, just slow down. Don't miss this. God's here. I'm not talking about don't miss the music." Or I'm not trying to even don't miss the message. Don't miss him. Don't miss him. He's here. The stuff that we use to shape and form our, our worship services, that's, just, that's an expression of ourselves. But, but, but the real glue that holds it all together is, is God himself, his presence. Let's just immerse and dwell within that here for just a few moments as we go to prayer this morning. The men, church. Hear his voice. Feel his touch. Father, as we gather in your presence today, we just want to recognize you. As Jesus taught us, Lord, we hallow your name. assume the right posture, Lord. It's amazing how the the worries and the concerns and the burdens of this world, well, they don't necessarily all go away. They, They tend to take their proper place behind you. You are sovereign. You're fully aware. You are still fully in control. And we acknowledge and we proclaim each of those truths, Lord, under this umbrella that most of all, Lord, you are a God who loves. So, Lord, we just want to rest in the arms of our loving Heavenly Father these next few moments. I'm sure, Lord, there's things we want to bring to you, things that are heavy that we're carrying. Things in our lives that we're uncertain about that bring confusion. I'm sure, Lord, there's, there's things that we're worried, that, that we're anxious over. There's things that we need you to do. You know all that. I pray that in this moment, today, we would make prayer about hearing you. Not, not missing There's something special, beautiful, even peaceful in this place right now. May we not get in the way of that. We're not forgetting. We're not dismissing our role in prayer to intercede. We're just trusting that you already know our hearts. we proclaim your goodness. We bear testimony, Lord, to your faithfulness. We, Father, acknowledge today that if we've come for any other reason than to worship you, we right now want to get our hearts in the right place. You, Father, are our audience this morning. The object of our focus, of our worship, of our praise. It's good today to be in the house of the Lord. Lord, we just thank you for being with us this morning. Continue what it is you're doing. You're moving. Lord, you're speaking and we recognize it. We acknowledge it. We relish it. and We thank you for it. Have your way with us, Lord, as we open up your word, your life-giving word. Help us to find something new. Gretchen us, change us, draw us closer. In Jesus' name we pray. Good to be with you this morning, and we, we welcome you. Uh, thank you for choosing to worship with us, and if you're new to to, to our service, my name is Pastor Brian, and we're glad that you're here, and I have uh, the privilege and honor of leading this faith family, and I just want to thank you uh, for continuing to, to trust us. God's doing some good things in the life of our church, and we're going to... Uh, Talk about some of those good things tonight. And if you are interested, we talked last week a little bit about that. We have a church meeting this evening at five PM. It's a little bit earlier than maybe normal, so we can still allow for some of the collectives that are still meeting at 6. And we're going to discuss what uh, we believe as a pastoral staff and as our board believes that, that God is doing. He's trying to position us to be effective in reaching our, our growing and changing community. We're seeing some incredible growth in our community. Some of it's great, some of it's, you know, a little bit inconvenient. Sometimes a little frustrating. Some change can be difficult at times. Regards how we feel about the growth. With growth comes people, and with people come opportunities for us to be God's hands and feet, and, and, and to share uh, this life-giving hope that we have discovered ourselves. Uh, so we're going to talk about one of the steps we believe God has kind of presented to us uh, in in relationship to some property we own a little bit north of town and some things that maybe we're going to consider doing uh, with that property in the days ahead. If you have questions, be sure to bring them. We're not going to hide anything. We want to be open and transparent with this. But we believe God is at work, and we're excited about that. So, um, so keep that in mind if you'd like to join us. We will record it. We will not live stream it. So if you'd like to see it later, you can't make it. We will make that available to you as um, as is needed. So I did want to take a few moments, and I'm not sure how many times or opportunities I'll have to do this in in, in my life or future, So, and I know he's going to be embarrassed by this, but... Uh, it it is what it is. He's here, and and I'm up here, and he's not, so I get to kind of make those decisions. But uh, uh, Veterans Day was yesterday. We want to recognize and celebrate our veterans, and if you're a veteran, have served our country in any of of our branches of of military service, I just want to invite you to stand, and we just want to take a few moments to thank you for uh, protecting our rights that we certainly um, are experiencing even right now. So, yes, thank you. So, anyway, just thank you very much for, for serving, and... Um, I say that because my son, uh, he's here today, he's in the midst of serving, and he's really going to hate me for this, but uh, in a few months, he's getting deployed overseas, and that'll be a new thing for his mother and I, but uh, we are thankful and proud of him, and thank you for each one who have served and are continuing to serve our our nation. Uh, We're here to worship today because of those who have served and protected those rights, and we don't want to take that for granted. But um, we're going to continue our conversation uh, on stewardship. November is a month of where we kind of shift our focus uh, to this idea of gratitude, of thanksgiving. Uh, you wouldn't actually know that on my street because they've gone straight from the Halloween decorations to uh, uh, the, the Christmas decorations. And um, the, uh, we have a neighbor who likes to decorate their house in the, the theme of the, the, the Christmas uh, vacation movie. And uh, they do a really good job. So much so that my dog barks at a lot of their the displays because they look very real. And um, if you know what Cousin Eddie or who Cousin Eddie is, and you'll understand that analogy. We have a Cousin Eddie on our street right now, and it's, it's quite, quite interesting. But uh, we don't want to miss this season uh, of giving thanks. And this is not necessarily a biblical season. Uh, and biblically, uh, gratitude is a virtue we should always be practicing, right? This is not just something limited to one time of year. But in our culture, uh, we set aside this month to, to be reminded of the things that we should be grateful for, of the blessings that we have been given. And I'm not talking about blessings in the physical, tangible sense, the, the worldly blessings, but rather the blessings that God gives to us. And he defines those much differently than, than we do typically in our world today. It's a time where we begin to think about family and, and time with family. And for some, that's, a, that's an anticipatory time. For others, that's a time of anxiousness. That's a time that maybe they're not looking forward to. So when we talk about Thanksgiving, we want to really get to the heart of, of what it's all about. And when we get to the heart of it, it helps each one of us, regardless of where we might be in our life situation with the challenges or the relationships that we had to deal with or, or the things that we have or the things that we don't have, things that are lacking, the things that are missing, the things that we've lost, things that we've gained. When we understand Thanksgiving and what it's about at its core, regardless of where we might be, it becomes a virtue or an attitude or a practice that we can participate in. Our conversation this month is about being a good steward, now, a steward is one we learned last week who manages another's property, who oversees their finances or their other affairs. And we are called to be good stewards, in God's word, of his affairs, of his finances, of his property. And we start to think about what that means. It could literally mean the cattle on a thousand hills. It can literally mean all of the money and gold in the world. But what I want us to go a little bit deeper than that and help us to understand and realize it also means one another. We become stewards of each other. We, we, we get to uh, see to and manage, not micromanage, but manage the affairs of the people that God brings into our lives we get to share and walk with every day. This conversation of management, of stewardship, of God's property, of all that belongs to him, uh, money tends to be the easy focus. So we will talk about money. I think money is one of the biggest strongholds that keeps us bound, keeps us from um, a, truly experiencing the blessings that God has for us. Letting go of of, of what the world uses to measure success is perhaps one of the last strongest uh, things that grab hold of us, that keep us captive. We're also going to talk about stewardship in the context of abilities, uh, of gifts, uh, of talents, of family, of our time, and of our lives. As we develop a deeper understanding of what it means to be a good steward, I believe our practice of stewardship will be reflected in our pursuit of his fullness. Last week I shared with you Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, where Paul writes, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom in every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray out of his glorious riches, his riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have together with the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long, and high, and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What a powerful prayer for Paul to, to pray over his people. And that's my prayer for us this month, is that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Not according to the fullness of the things of our world and our culture, the things that we've identified that we think we need, but to the measure, in the way that God measures it, this fullness of God in the way that he's always designed and intended for it to be. That's a different conversation. It begins at the very heart of us recognizing that it belongs to him. It begins with us surrendering to him. And as we arise from that point of surrender, as Paul begins his prayer, he says, I kneel before the Father. When we get up from that position of kneeling, that that posture of submission, then we become good stewards of all that it is that he's presented to us. And stewardship, or how we steward, is an indicator for us uh, of where, or, or perhaps what, we seek to use to fill our lives. How or what are you stewarding over? And you can right now very quickly identify in your spirit if you're stewarding over God's possessions or if you're stewarding over your own. You know that, I believe, right now. That's how good God is. That's how how the Holy Spirit works. But I also believe there's some who might be doing, might be bivocational in their stewardship. They're trying to steward what maybe is still theirs. They're trying to steward a little bit of what they have claimed to give over to God. We find ourselves in this place of compromise. And we're going to work through that this month. We're going to give the Holy Spirit some room to reveal to us what it might be that we're holding on to. Last week, we emphasized that we give to church, we we, we give tithe, we give offerings, we, we give money, not because we ought to, but because we get to. Aren't you glad for that? We get to give. God invites us to participate in his work. God entrusts us with what's his. He entrusts us with his stuff to take care of it, to use it wisely, to invest in others, to help those in need. We get to be a part of what it is he's doing. And I'm so glad for that opportunity. It can be intimidating, though, can't it? We don't want to misuse it. We certainly don't want to lose it. And I hope that we don't want to waste it. My kids now, they, my, my young, when they're not in here, I can talk about them. I need that little dollar jar where I talk about my kids, I put a dollar in there. I could pay their way through college if I had one of those. But they like to go, when they go to the store with us, and we don't take them very often. We've learned some lessons. They don't get to go with us very often because it, well, it it just turns a short trip into a long process. And, you know, when you go to the store, you know the the, the candy aisle, they put that there on purpose, right? And they put the candy, the really good candies, on the very bottom shelf on purpose. So those little eyes, they're not so far away from that stuff. And and my kids have learned that mom and I are not going to buy them that stuff. So they take their own wallets. And they take their own money. And they just can't wait for that opportunity to, to buy things off the shelf. Especially two days after going, going trick-or-treating, that doesn't make any sense to me. You've got a whole bag of that stuff at home. Not so much anymore. Thankfully, it goes quickly. But they've waste, right? And, and we're not so different from our children, are we? We see things that kind of catch our eye that we think we have to have. And, and before we know it, We haven't been the best of stewards that maybe God wants us to be. But we get to give. And and we're called to give God everything. Our time, our talents, our finances, our treasure, our abilities. Why? Because God gave us everything. Because we, we move forward with that understanding, that premise. We move forward understanding stewardship in the context, it's something that we get to do. We get to give. Paul writes to, to Timothy, uh, he, was, he was a young disciple of Paul's, and, and and Paul was kind of mentoring Timothy, and he writes in his letter to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. We see some words in this passage that maybe kind of pique our interest that this word rich shows up multiple times, but our understanding of rich will have an impact on how we interpret Paul's letter to Timothy. What does it mean to be rich? I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's important for us to understand what rich looks like and what happens when we perhaps are rich rich. And you may not look at yourself today as being rich, but when it comes to global standards today, everyone in this room is, is in a very high percentile when it comes to income and the money that we have at, our, at our, our disposal. You may not think you have as much or you may not have as much as your neighbor, the one sitting in front of you or behind you. When it comes to global standards, we are rich. Now, context is important. I'm not dismissing that. And certainly that has an impact on that. But what we do know Is regardless of how much you have, uh, the more that we make and in our culture today, in Western culture, the more Americans make specifically, the less they give. In our minds, we might think, well, if I just made more, I could give more. If I just had more, then I could let go of more. But what we begin to see is in reality, and statistics bear this out, that the more that we make, the less that we give. And I'm talking about percentage, not necessarily dollars and cents. But the more that we have, or the more that's in our bank accounts, the less of it we release. It's about a percentage. If you make about $50,000, or if you bring home about $50,000, typically, statistically, you give about 6% of that away. As that number grows to $200,000, the statistic goes down, you give about 4% of that away. So while the more tends to make sense that we've given more dollars by giving 4% 4% of $200,000 away, then 6% of $50,000 away, we've actually given less. The, and I think it's important that we understand that this statistic also bears itself out when it comes to the time one gives. It bears itself out when you look at all the areas of our lives in which we're called to be stewards. If we define stewardship by giving, then we significantly misunderstand the heart of God. If it's just about giving money or giving a percentage, then we're missing the point. Fullness is not found in the things of this world. But as Paul communicates to the Ephesians that we shared earlier, the fullness of God is found when we immerse ourselves in the love of Christ. And that 3D immersion uh, that that encompasses all the aspects that surrounds us, that's below us, it's it's above us, it's on each side of us, it's in front of us and behind us, enables us then to recognize the, the principles of stewardship that I want to convey I believe that God wants to convey to us over these next few weeks. Last week we talked about ownership, about how it all belongs to God. We are, are, are chosen as children of God to be stewards of all that he owns. But just as statistically we give less money and time when we make more, our understanding and practice of ownership is impacted by the amount that we make. How we steward changes. Consequently, so does our focus For this week. Leviticus chapter 27 verse 30. We see God God kind of get right to to the point. Right to the heart of things with Moses. And he's commanded the people. uh, To give a tithe. To bring a tithe to the Lord. And, And we read in verse 30 of chapter 27 of Leviticus. A tithe of everything from the land. Whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees. Belongs to the Lord. And then we see something very important. When it comes to this concept of giving. Then God tells Moses. It is holy to the Lord. Tithe is holy. And to be holy means to be set apart, to be of God, to to belong to him, not just possessively, but but it really is intrinsically his. We speak of being a holiness denomination, a holiness people. We speak of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and, and God pouring out his spirit upon his people to fulfill the purpose that he has for them. The tithe is the same. It's to fulfill the purposes that God has for his people here on earth. We give because it belongs to the Lord. We also give because it's holy. When we give a tithe, when we give a gift, when we write a check, when we put money in the box or the plate, or when you give online, it's holy. And if we've stopped looking at it as a holy return of what belongs to God, then we're missing it. We'll talk about the, the attitude and the implications of the way that we give a little bit later this morning. But Ralph Cushman writes, the worship that is empty-handed, simply not worship at all. The bringing of an offering to God is pictured in Scripture as a high and inestimable an estimable part of worship. We transition from this idea of, of we give because God already owns it all, ownership. It's now the principle this morning we talk about is worship. Worship. How does it fit in this idea of worship well if we first can't acknowledge that god owns it and, and we're will- not willing to let go of it then that's going to put something in the way of our worship of god it's hard to wrap our minds around the, the old testament practice of worship what worship looked like in, in in the hebrew worship especially i mean so many things that they did they just seem foreign or they seem kind of antiquated or that's just kind of what they did then and we certainly want to dismiss the idea that when Jesus came, it, it changed a little bit of our view of worship. But the format of worship that God gave to the Israelites in the wilderness when they constructed the tabernacle, the instructions that God gave to Moses and to Aaron of how worship should, should look, the, the, that framework is still practiced, or should still be practiced even yet today. But worship was, it was a sacrificial system. And not just in the sacrifice that, that was offered on the altars before God, but sacrifice in attitude, sacrifice in spirit, sacrifice in even uh, the way that it was done. The whole point of worship was sacrificial. We, we set aside time, or our time, that we think our time, to go before God. And, and part of that worship, it, it, it involved letting go of every aspect of their lives remember the Sabbath and kept it holy. It was time set apart. Even that day of worship was holy in of itself. Uh, they were to take gifts and offerings that we see in Leviticus chapter 27 there that was holy to the Lord. They were to bring their worship themselves before God humbly, recognizing that left to our own, we, we could not even remotely approach him. So to, to worship God was something that had to be planned for. I, they, they didn't just wake up on a Sunday morning and say, oh, I've got, got 45 minutes to get ready. They had to plan to get on a donkey or a camel or to walk to get to their place of worship. It, it was something that took effort and coordination. It wasn't an afterthought. It was their only thought. It was the way that, that in their calendar they would conclude their week and help them prepare for the next The whole idea of worship is that God was their focus. God was their audience. And even yet today, that framework should still be in place. Do we prepare to worship? Do we get ready, not just ready physically, getting dressed and brushing our teeth and fixing our hair, to go to worship? Do we get ready spiritually to go and to step into his presence? Do we think about what it is we're going to bring as our offering? What is it that I get to bring to God and to give back to him today? Do we think about worship in that way? Is he the audience? And are we willing to ask if perhaps at times we view ourselves as the audience? I'm guilty of that. What am I going to get out of this? Is this worth my time? Oh, pastor's over an hour and 15 minutes. I'm going to be late. I, and I am not want to say any of those things. Don't get me wrong. Do we have deep down within us the, these parts that we're holding back that impact how we approach God? What are our expectations when we come into this place? What is it you hope to gain out of coming on a Sunday morning if we're looking for what we get out of it, then we're missing it. It's not what we get, it's what we give. When we come ready to give to God all that is His, even in our messed up weeks, God then has the opportunity to do something powerful. The worship wars in our culture today, many of the areas of disagreement, uh, they, they, they tend to uh, turn this idea that this Old Testament practice of worship around as if preparing about worship is about our flavors, our desires. Worship was and still is participatory. It involved the senses. It involved our, our, our sights and sounds that we hear. It even involved smells and, and touch and, and even taste. There are elements in our worship that involve all of the senses. It was, that was intentional. That's the way God intended it and planned for it to be. I wonder how this imagery of Old Testament worship... Uh, this, this heart and the reason they came, how does it match or conflict with what worship has become? What might happen? We would prepare and get ready to step into God's presence. We would come ready to give and to let go of the things that he already owns. We would genuinely choose to worship him. How might our understanding of what it means to be a steward change? Now, in the Old Testament, that worship was a significant and central part of, of, of their gathering together. And they might come, they might give money, but most often that they lived, uh, they, they were kind of farmers, they were shepherds. They would bring produce, they'd bring livestock. Uh, my father-in-law pastored for, for, for 40 plus years and tells of stories at his very first church in Illinois, uh, where he was still in school and was pastoring this church, and how some in the church would literally come and they would pay with chickens. Now, my wife and kids might like that if you brought a live chicken as part of your giving. I'm not sure how much my HOA would like that, but you know, that'd be kind of interesting to see. If you bring us a live chicken, it's going to stay alive. We're not going to you know, use that chicken for anything else other than that, maybe to lay eggs. But he talks about how he had farmers that would bring part of their crop at the end of the season and would bring that to the church as part of their giving. He had one farmer that had a gas tank on his farm for his, for his tractors and his implements and and once a week, my father-in-law could go and could fill up his car. There, there was ways of giving beyond the money, beyond the, the dollars and cents. And, and that's what was practiced in the Old Testament. So when we talk about this idea of giving, it can look differently. I'll be honest with you. I'm not worried about the dollars and cents. You've been faithful in that. You've, been, you've responded to God's goodness in your lives. And the church is going to make some of you cringe, but it doesn't need your money. God doesn't need our money. There's nothing God needs from us. The only thing we can do for God that God can't do for himself is what we're here doing this morning, worship. We are created and called to worship. And part of worshiping him is, yes, giving. And that's part of being a good steward is releasing and letting go. And it's not an easy thing for us to do, but yet it is a very telling thing when we look at what it is we give that that tells a significant part of our story and our relationship and how it is that we approach God. If we hold anything back, then he stops being the audience. If we hold anything back, then we're questioning who it is that owns the stuff to begin with. So all of this goes, this idea of stewardship speaks to our hearts and our walk with him. We have to intentionally choose to give. And when we are intentional, it changes how, how, uh, how we give, and it changes the impact that giving has on our own lives. Now, what's challenging for us today in, in the culture in which we live, and then there are expressions of worship sometimes, even when it comes to giving, they look a little different. I know some have set up auto pay, and, and the church receives a check or two each month from, from your bank, you've got that set up on your bank, and you just give that way electronically. Others might give online. You can schedule it online, you can get online, and you can kind of use it. You can even use your phone. It's amazing the ways that we have to give today. And I even do that. But here's where I'm struggling. The problem with that is it takes away the action of my choosing in 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 a place of worship to responsibly bring my gift before the Lord. If it's something that I just do as if I'm paying the electric bill then that speaks to my heart and my attitude. Now, it could be that I've just let it go completely. It's just something that I do. I just release it to God, and he just takes care of it. There's value and beauty in that, but there's something significant about us taking time in the moment of giving to thank God for what he's given to us and to responsibly return it back to him. There's something humbling and and, and redemptive that, that, that reminds us of his goodness when we actually can point to the moment and the reasons and the attitude behind why it is that we're choosing to give. Genesis chapter 4 we kind of see this lived out. It's so early in scripture I think it's significant for us to understand this is a really important part of this biblical story. It happens in the first four chapters in Genesis chapter 4 Adam and Eve have had two sons Cain and Abel. And a lot happens between the moment they're born uh, to this moment but they've grown up and Abel has kind of found this affinity towards raising uh, the, the livestock, where, where Cain has had this affinity to kind of tending to the crops, the vegetables, and the fruits. And, and we read in verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Before church was a thing, before the tabernacle or the temple existed in the Old Testament— Worship was so intimately personal. They just went before the Lord. Right where they were. There there was just four of them that we know of at this time. There might have been some other kids that were younger in that moment. We're not sure exactly. But but what we see, well, we are sure exactly the scripture tells us that. But what we see is that they go before the Lord and they bring their offerings. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offerings, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry his face was downcast if you keep reading the story we know what happens next Cain would kill his brother God's favor was not based on God favoring the steak over the vegetables although I could understand that rather it was about stewardship Cain brought some Brought some. Abel brought his first. Cain brought leftovers. The attitude of each conveys their focus. Cain was focused still on himself. Abel was focused on God. Their understanding of ownership is in turn reflected in their worship. Cain gives because he has to or because he ought to. Abel acknowledges in the giving of the firstborn portions that it already belongs to God. The object of his worship is reflected in the gift, the best, that he brings before God. Are we giving God our firsts? Are we giving God our leftovers? Are we giving God all the best? Are we giving God some? Each is an indicator of how we view this relationship with God. Each is an indicator of our relationship with him. Again, not measured in dollars and cents, but in some, best. Throughout the Old Testament, God instructs his people to give offerings, to give their best. In Numbers, God instructs Aaron how, how to steward and distribute the offerings uh, to the priests. In Leviticus, we've already read that the tithe is holy. We learned last week that King David acknowledged that all belonged to God, but not everyone would follow the examples of Abel and David. In Second Chronicles, uh, we we read about King Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz served uh, about l- over two hundred years after the passing of David, two hundred fifty years after David. We see King Ahaz. Then, between David and Ahaz, there's a lot of kings, and, and some some were good, some follow the ways of the Lord, some were not so good. But what we read about in the, in, in, in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, is that that the measure of whether or not you were a good king or a bad king was always in comparison. You're always c- c- So that beside the example of David. David was always the model. And we see in in chapter 28 of 2 Chronicles, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. Unlike David, 250 years later, unlike David, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. At this point, Israel and Judah have, have separated, it's a divided kingdom. And he also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben Hinnon and sacrificed his sons in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places on the hilltops under every spreading tree. Ahaz worshiped, he just didn't worship God. He worshiped the God of their enemies, the God of their neighbors that allowed him to own it himself. At the end of the day, it's always about who does it belong to. We read a lot about Ahaz, and and he was not a very good person at all. And when we get to verses 22, (coughs) excuse me, 23, in time, the trouble King Ahaz, sorry, in the time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who defeated him. For he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I'll sacrifice to them so that they will help me. That's not so different than many in our world today. We see God in our minds bless others. And we want to be blessed in the same way, so we try to mimic their lifestyle. In essence, we bow down to the gods so that we see them worship, assuming or believing that we're going to experience the same. Verse 24, Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple. He shut the doors to church. Decided he was going to worship a different way. That is such a sad verse we see in Scripture. He shut the doors to the temple wasn't about dollars and cents it was about his heart about stewarding what it is that, that God had given in the position that he had and we read that he was not like David and there are seasons all throughout the Old Testament where we see that this happen. but then he had a son and his son Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just just as his father David had done. So Hezekiah shows up and he sees what's happened, and things are a mess. And, and and what we see in verse three, in the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He restored the priests and the Levites to their position. He says, "Listen to me. Consecrate yourselves." Consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove the defilement from the sanctuary. He says, let's get this place ready to be used, what it's meant for. We're going to return to the worship the way that David modeled for us, and God is going to be our focus yet again. We can jump all the way. We read through 29 and 30 about what Hezekiah is doing to get the people ready to worship. And, and then in chapter 31 of Second Chronicles, uh, we see when all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles, destroyed the high places in the altar throughout Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh. And after they destroyed them all, they returned to their own towns and to their own property. So we get to the next part of worship. They've gotten rid of the distractions. They can kind of turning their hearts back around. In verse 4 of chapter 31, he ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due After all, they knew in Leviticus it was holy to the Lord. Verse five: When the Israelites, the Israelites gave generously the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. Now under Ahaz, there was never enough. They didn't have enough for tribute. They didn't have enough to pay off their enemies. They were always struggling. Ahaz even sold some of the temple furnishings which were elaborate, they were laden with gold. He was using what was in the temple to pay off his own debtors because he was chasing after things that didn't belong to him. And not only were, were they not tithing and honoring worshiping God, uh, we, we read and scripture that their hearts were far and away from God. Now worship is renewed, and Hezekiah, after doing all the purging and cleansing, gets to something that's really important. Let's get back to giving back to God what is his. When giving is restored, we start to see something amazing happen. If you continue reading through chapter twenty or through chapter thirty-one, as the holy things are given back to God, as Israel begins to respond and to give their tithe, it's an overwhelming response. Verse eight: When Hezekiah's officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed His people Israel. In verse ten. Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple, we've had enough to eat and plenty to spare. as The Lord has blessed his people, and this great amount is left over. Cain gave his leftovers. Abel gave his best. When we give our best. It's amazing. If we give God our leftovers, church, you're never going to have enough. It's not. When you give God your best, now we put ourselves in this place of having leftover. Now, I'm not talking about prosperity gospels. I'm not talking about if you give, God's going to give you more and back. He will give, but it might not look the same way that we want it to. It'll always be in accordance to his plan and his will for our lives. See, when we give, we always have enough because our, our, our attitudes have changed. Our mindset has changed. What it is it we think we need, it's changing, and God is able to do so much more with even less. We see this in the New Testament. (laughs) Paul writes his letters to the church in Corinthians. And he's speaking to the needs of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is struggling, so he's communicating to the Corinthians, hey, we're going to take an offering. And he's kind of contacting all the churches. Hey, we're we're doing an offering for the church in in Jerusalem. They're having a tough time. And the the church in in Corinth, in in Greece, they've got the means. They've got the money. They're just kind of taking their time and responding. They're just really not uh, being as uh, responsive as Paul would have anticipated or expected them to do. And what we see in the church in Corinth, and this part of the reason that Paul is writing to them, is he's responding to their attitude. And he begins to respond to them, not in trying to condemn them or beat them down, but instead he uses, I think, a really brilliant strategy. He speaks of the faith of the church in Macedonia. Now, the Macedonian church, they were, they were in the midst of extreme poverty, they, they were being oppressed. They were being held down. But Paul talks to the church in Corinth about the church in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says in verse 2, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up within them rich generosity. Joy over obligation, opportunity over ought to. They gave as a response to the one they worshiped. While the amount the church in Macedonia gave was probably not as much as the church in Corinth was able to give, their hearts and their attitudes reflected even greater riches that they had discovered. This opportunity to help others was a give back to God, what is already his, and showed their understanding of ownership and their worshipful hearts. They gave because they they wanted to. They they had, Paul goes on to explain, they kind of basically had to beg Paul for permission to give an offering. They weren't going to miss this opportunity to respond to help someone else. Because even in the midst of their struggles, they saw the goodness of God. Their overflowing joy welled up in rich generosity. Do we give reluctantly, have to or ought to, or do we give because we get to? we give with, Lord, what are you going to do with this? I can't wait to see, God, what you do with this gift. I can't wait to see, God, how you multiply this, how you reach someone else, how others come to know you. Do we give with anticipation that God's going to do more with it than we ever could? Or do we give in the back of our minds thinking, boy, I'd like to have that new TV, or what's the new meme on who we see now? Uh, You know, Stores don't give us specials on TV for Christmas or Black Friday. Give us those discounts on groceries. Um, Our world, things quickly change. We trust that God's going to do more with it than we could on our own. Joy over obligation. Opportunity over ought to. Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 23, he's speaking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth, you do tithe. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, and your cumin, but you neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, Jesus is proclaiming to them. The Pharisees tithe, without question that was the law they had to. And if they got past the had to, they were giving so that others would recognize and see them. It was a point of pride for the Pharisees, not, not a point of, of submission. They gave down to the exact percent because that's what they were told to do, but they missed the point. They missed the heart of the issue. It wasn't about worship or even ownership for them. It was about being noticed. Their hearts, if we look close enough, the same as Cain's. And what did Cain do? He killed his brother. What did the Pharisees, what were they a part of? Killing of Christ. See, when we don't have the right attitude, when our hearts don't recognize the things that God gives us, we see where it leads us. As if favor could be bought, they approached God with clenched fists and clenched hearts, neglecting those around them that really needed their love and support tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy. God proclaimed it holy to the Israelites on their journey to the promised land. And our gifts and our tithes, our offerings to him today are still holy. And our attitudes and our hearts reflect how we embrace this role of being stewards. We bring the tithe, our offerings, as a community of faith. We return to God what is already his. And when we do so, we worship. Worship. And when we do so with genuine hearts, God tends to take care of things. What I love about our faith family, what I love about our church, and I'm glad I've got people that are better at this than me, they kind of take care of the numbers stuff. I've only been here 18 months, uh, 17 months, and hopefully we have a long time left with one another and see what God is doing in this community. I'm, I'm anxious to be a part of that. I don't have to worry about the numbers. They keep me updated. They kind of tell me what's going on, and, and the news has been, recently has been good. And we're excited about that. But because of what we see God doing, we want to continue to be good stewards. That's part of our conversation tonight is we want to be good stewards of what it is it God's given to us. We'll talk about more about that this evening. As a community of faith, when we give back what is holy to God, he does more with it than we ever could. So as he is faithful, you've responded. And we're going to respond in kind as a church to be faithful. But God doesn't need what's in our wallets. God desires what's in our hearts. He does ask for the first. He asks for the best because he knows if we release our grip on that, there's not much else that we would withhold from him. Giving to God is a blessing. It's a blessing to give so that we can be a part of what he's doing for others. It's a blessing to be part of his work, to be be, be part of how uh, he's reaching a world that is lost. It's a blessing to be called to participate in this with him. To release what it is that he's already given, that he already owns. So when we get ready to celebrate the season of thanksgiving, I pray that we understand it's about obedience, it's about ownership, and it's about worship. Still, one more principle we'll talk about next week. I'll save all of that information for then. What's in the way of your giving thanks? What's in the way of your worship? One thing I've discovered over the years when I've, I've, I've met with people that are struggling with their faith, that are having difficulty even worshiping God, that, that are having a tough time even hearing his voice. One thing that was taught to me, it was modeled for me, it was shown to me, and I, and I can't tell you who did it or who told me about it, but it was so life-changing. When I have difficulty praying, what they told me, if you can't pray, find one thing to give God thanks for, to thank him. Even when things are going really bad, we can usually find one thing for which we can give him thanks. And thanksgiving tends to then reverse what it is we're struggling with. It it opens up this floodgate. It it reminds us of ownership, reminds us of his presence, and it enables us to worship. There should never be a season where I come before God and and I'm able to worship. I might be going through a pretty heavy time, a time of grief, a time of loss, a time of uncertainty. But I can still worship God because he hasn't changed. It's always been his. It's still his. And he invites me to participate. What it is he's doing. Giving thanks, it, it all works together. And I'll close with this this morning. The same way that we opened. My desire ultimately is not to increase the church's checking account. It's not even about recognizing it all belongs to God. My, my, my desire is that we get to the place where we desire and want to experience the fullness of God. That's found when in this loving relationship with Christ that just surrounds us. It's, it's found also when we submit ourselves to him. That fullness is found when we release those things that keep us back, that hold us captive, that keep us bound. Talk about giving, church, not because we need it, because you need it. It's one of those things that could get in the way, prevent us from being immersed, keep us from being full. So, this season, we want to address everything that might be getting or blocking any way of us being thankful. Perhaps it's more of something, perhaps it's less, but all. Along the way, we're learning to be good stewards, to manage what it is God's given to us, so that he could be glorified, bring to the tithe, belongs to the Lord, for it is holy. You, creations of God, are holy. Through his Holy Spirit, we can be restored. We are redeemed through the blood of Jesus. God invites us to walk with him. You stand with me. This season of thanksgiving, I'm not even going to challenge you to go and give. I'm going to challenge you to go and give thanks. I'm going to challenge you to go and and to worship him, not just on Sunday mornings, but worship him throughout the week. I'm going to challenge you to go home and to recognize that he already owns it. See if that doesn't change our attitude towards thanksgiving and being a people that are grateful for all that God has done for us. Father, thank you. It seems inadequate to say thank you considering all that you've done, all that you do, all that you've given. But That's the whole focus of our conversation this month, is to become a people that can give you thanks. When things are going well in our minds, when things are going good, it seems to be easier a little more challenging when uh, things are tight, when the relationships, Lord, are flawed, when work or family life's not going as well as we'd like it to be, when maybe our marriage is struggling. In those seasons, God, thanksgiving seems harder. But Might you even turn that thought around? Might that be a time where we'd even give you more thanks? Because those are opportunities for you, Lord, to show up for you, Lord, to be faithful, for you, Lord, to add to our stories. Father, I do thank you for your goodness. Thank you for entrusting and calling, inviting us to be part of your work. Today, Lord, we let go of the things that already belong to you. Today, God, if we haven't yet, may we choose still to worship you as you modeled it for us beginning first with our hearts and our attitudes and letting you fill in the blanks after that. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. God, we go and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.